0: This week on the Defense Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the time is now for a permanent overseer inside the Pentagon and debut day for DOD's zero trust strategy. It's Wednesday, November 22nd, 2022. Welcome to the Defense Scoop podcast. Every week you'll learn what's going on in defense technology. I'm the host of the Defense Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The defense department's taking a new look at how technology will impact irregular warfare, and DARPA's looking for new artificial intelligence tech for drones. John Harper's managing editor for Defense Scoop, Mark is a reporter for Defense Scoop. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks for joining me. John, I start with you. The artificial intelligence reinforcements that DARPA is looking for. What exactly are they looking for and what are they looking to reinforce? Welcome.
1: Thanks, Francis. Well, the uh, AIR program, as DARPA calls it, because DOD always has to have an acronym for things. In this particular case, that's actually a decent one. Um, But they're looking for um, two things, really, in this new program. Um, One is advanced modeling and simulation approaches uh, for AI technology, uh, but also AI agents for live, multi-ship, beyond-visual range, offensive and defensive counter-air missions. So the whole goal to develop new artificial intelligence tools so that uh, the US military can achieve what DARPA calls dominant tactical autonomy um, uh, for air combat.
0: An interesting approach to this that you're writing about. You write, the plan is for the technology initially to be demonstrated on F-16 fighter jet test beds with a human in the loop before they transfer it to drones. What do we know about why they're taking that approach?
1: Well, sometimes DOD, uh, when they're testing out some of these technologies, um, they'll have uh, these types of autonomy capabilities uh, integrated into uh, an aircraft uh, that was originally designed to be a, a manned platform. And sometimes, for example, they'll have uh, a human pilot sitting in the cockpit, not controlling the the platform, but just there in case things go wrong and the AI screws up and, you know, the plane starts to uh, uh, spiral out of control or head towards the ground or do something that uh, DOD doesn't want it to do so the pilot could intervene, take control of the aircraft and uh, prevent disaster, basically. So um, DARPA didn't spell that out in their uh, broad agency announcement, uh, but it sounds like that's kind of the plan before they just put these into uh, drones that are kind of out there operating on their own.
0: You write that DARPA had a proposer's day for the program last week. What was the takeaway? Do we know what the next steps are as far as this goes?
1: Um, Yeah, they um, have put out this broad agency announcement now, um, and there's uh, also a classified annex to it, which contractors need to request uh, if they're interested. Uh, But um, proposals are due um, from industry uh, in March, so uh, uh, contractors will have a little bit of time uh, to put those together, um, and then uh, DARPA plans to award uh, several awards. Uh, looks like to several vendors uh, at least for phase one of this program. So it's not just uh, you know narrowed down to a single contractor at least here in the beginning. It's a multi-phase program expected to last. Um, about four years, I believe. Um, so, uh, you know, this is just kind of the initial, uh, uh ramp up of that.
0: What, uh, how, how does this intersect with other work that you've tracked or other work that DARPA has done or other applications across the department?
1: Well, uh, it, the, uh, services are all pursuing AI and autonomy capabilities. Uh, you know, the, uh, Air Force is getting ready to launch a uh, collaborative combat aircraft program, which essentially is for robotic wingmen that could accompany fighter jets or other platforms into battle. You know, they've had some s efforts uh, with the Air Force Research Lab on their Skyboard program, for example. Um, but, you know, uh, Air Force officials have cited DARPA's ACE program, which is another, uh, you know, AI related uh, program. Uh, That included, you know, alpha dogfight trials where they uh, pitted, uh, you know, human pilots against AI systems in a simulation environment and the AI won handily. Uh, So, you know, this is kind of building on work that's already been done. But it sounds like DARPA kind of wants to take things uh, to the next level and have systems that can operate in a more, dynamic, complex operational environment. So it's, it's building on previous work. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how this technology eventually transitions uh, into
0: the services. Uh, more in your story on DefenseScoop.com. John, Mark Pomerleau, welcome. Your story is titled In Light of Great Power Competition, DOD Reevaluating Irregular Warfare and Info Ops. And you write DOD is examining what irregular warfare and information operations look like against sophisticated nation state actors. What are they examining and what does that transition look like in the minds of defense department officials right now?
2: Sure, Francis. So there, there's, I guess, two parts to this. One is um, on the irregular warfare side, as, as it pertains to special operations forces, um you know, there, there's a perception out there that they really ha- only were used or were or, um, or popularized during the, the Global War on Terror right. We, I, we're all familiar with the stories of Joint Special Operations Command, JSOC and all the raids that they conducted. Uh, you know probably the most famous was the one that, that killed Osama bin Laden. And so um, with this new shift that the Department of Defense has announced in the last few years uh, towards great power competition and, and prioritizing conflict and, and competition with nation state adversaries over these violent extremist organizations. Um, there's been this perception um, that uh, special operations forces might not be as useful or might not be as needed. Um, now, officials say that that's not exactly true, but that's part, I think, of what they're talking about here in terms of reevaluating what irregular warfare looks like to support the DoD's mission and push to prioritize these, these actors. Um, similarly, in the information operations front, um, they're looking to bolster their capabilities and and, and tactics here to be able to combat these uh, sophisticated nation state adversaries and actors um, in this gray zone competition space, which really exists below the threshold of of armed conflict and and, an all out war, essentially.
0: You uh, have a quote from Richard Tilly, the director of the Office of Irregular Warfare and Competition, in your story. We're trying to figure out why do we get that so wrong, referring to, uh, you write, conventional wisdom that Ukraine would fall quickly to Russia. What is it that they think they got wrong, and how does that inform the way that they're thinking about irregular warfare? Not just it sounds like how we might conduct it, but how others might conduct it against us.
2: Yeah, so uh, I think in that context, he was really talking about um, the Ukrainians' will to fight, and and, and you know the, the the conventional wisdom going into the conflict was that Russia would really just kind of roll over the, the territory, and and it wouldn't be much of a fight. And so, uh, as as the United States is looking to help uh, support some of these organizations and local populations. Um, through non-kinetic means through inform- the information environment and such, they're really trying to figure out how they got these perceptions wrong. He also mentioned, of course, um, uh, the withdrawal in Afghanistan where, you know, again, the conventional wisdom was that the Afghan army and, and the people would repel the Taliban. That didn't happen. Uh, similarly, the, the people of Mosul and Iraq to repel ISIS um, several years ago. And so he um, I, I, he, he was thinking or, or talking rather more on on how the U.S. government and the military can take a better um, quantity or qualitative analysis on this. He was saying, you know, the, the DOD is, is very good at at. Um, uh, quantitative, looking at what organizations and, and militaries have in terms of tanks or airplanes. But, you know, they need to start looking at, at private industry and, and, and some of these marketing campaigns um, for more of a qualitative analysis on how do you get your messaging across and how do you galvanize a, a, a group of people to really support uh, and carry that message and um, really deny the adversary their uh, victories in the information uh, domain. It's a
0: fascinating story you have at DefenseScoop.com. Mark, what are you tracking in the coming week? I know it's a short week with the holiday. What's ahead?
2: Sure. Um, so in, in a couple of weeks, um, the Army is actually hosting its uh, ninth tech. Uh, I'm sorry, 10th technical exchange meeting um, in Nashville, where they'll be outlining the um, kind of their next steps for their uh, integrated tactical network uh, as they look to modernize their um, their battlefield communications. This will be another opportunity to look forward, um, particularly in the 2025-2027 timeframe um, and provide a, a little bit of a picture to members of industry on how they can support and even how they can help shape uh, what that architecture is going to look like going forward. John, what about
0: you? What are you tracking?
1: We'll be uh, looking to see if UNI uh, finally releases its uh, annual China military power report. Um, we were expecting that to come out this month. Uh, obviously, uh, we're running out of time for that, um, but uh, that's a significant document because you know uh, these DOD modernization efforts are uh, being significantly driven by concerns about the military threat posed by China. And uh, this uh, China Military Power Report is something DOD puts out every year. Um, Sometimes, you know, uh, the language is pretty similar, uh, but I will be definitely looking to see what's different uh, about this. And I'm also curious to find out, um, you know, why uh, it hasn't been released sooner.
0: John Harper, Mark Pomerleau, great reporting as always. Thanks very much for joining me.
1: Thanks, Francis. Thank you.
0: And you can read more about all those stories and lots more at defensescoop.com. The Defense Department says it's made progress toward a clean opinion in its release of the results of the 2022 financial audit this week. Those results, though, came from a DOD inspector general's office that hasn't had a confirmed leader in six years. Glenn Fine is a fellow at the Brookings Institution. He's former acting inspector general at the Pentagon and former IG at the Justice Department. Glenn, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What are the ramifications, for having no one Senate confirmed presidentially appointed in that position for such an extended period of time. Welcome, Glenn.
3: Uh, thanks for having me. Um, it is better to have a Senate confirmed presidentially appointed permanent inspector general than an acting one. To be clear, acting inspector general can, can and have done effective jobs and can move the office. So it's, the position is not vacant. But it's better to have a permanent IG for several reasons. One, the permanent IG can make long-term strategic decisions, can move the office in different directions, can do personnel decisions that an acting may be hesitant to do. In addition, um, the agency or even the IG's office, there may be people who are waiting out the acting IG and, and do not take the acting IG's recommendations and reports as seriously as otherwise because they think that the, the acting IG might not be there for a long time. So they don't act with the same sense of urgency. It's just simply better to have a permanent person in that position. And it's unfortunate that there has not been a permanent person in the Defense Department IG position.
0: You told me a story not too long ago about a conversation you had with the Secretary of Defense Mattis when you were the acting IG there. Describe that conversation and how that informed the way that you went about conducting yourself as the acting IG
3: there. So I worked under many different attorneys general and several secretaries of defense, and they all supported the role of an IG. Secretary Mattis understood and appreciated the role. He wanted a permanent IG, um, but he realized I was the acting IG. And he had a conversation with me and he said, Glenn, you're the acting IG, so act, meaning that you should take steps as if you were the permanent IG. And I tried to do that. I tried to make the hard decisions. We did reorganize the office. I did make personnel decisions. So I tried to act in the role as I would have uh, as a permanent IG. But as I described, it simply is not the same. And it is better to have that stability, that permanence, that uh, gravitas that you have when you are the permanent IG. And people know that they can't wait you out and they can't uh, dismiss your recommendations or your changes in the hopes that someone else will be coming soon.
0: You were the deputy IG before serving as the acting IG. Uh, You were the deputy John Reimer when he was the inspector general at the Defense Department. What is it that people don't know maybe about the, the scope, the portfolio of the office of the inspector general there? I think people understand the investigation piece. I'm not sure people understand the audit and not just the financial audit piece of what an IG office does.
3: So, yes, yeah, so an IG office has an investigative side, an audit side, an evaluation side, and the scope of the responsibilities of the Department of Defense IG is are, are mammoth. It's mammoth. It's we have oversight over the entire defense department. We oversee the military military service IGs and civilian agency IGs. <clears throat> the Department of Defense is the largest organization in government, as you know. It has half of the discretionary spending of the United States government. So the IG's oversight role is enormous we have 18 we had 1800 employees that have to oversee the entire defense department and that involves uh, investigations of uh, misconduct investigations of reprisal criminal investigation but a very robust audit side that did program reviews that did financial secu- uh, statement reviews that did computer security reviews that did performance reviews throughout the entire breadth and depth of the Department of Defense. We also had oversight over the intelligence community part of the Department of Defense. So um, it really was widespread and very important to have a, a robust and effective audit function and evaluation function in the Department of Defense Inspector General Office, and we did.
0: What's the broader structure look like in the Inspector General community for Basically, as you proposed uh, back in August, watching the watchdogs, Glenn, because it's not just the individual IG offices uh, in and of themselves. There's a there's a broader structure, or or there should be a broader structure. Some propose. Uh,
3: well, there there is a, a group of the group of uh, IGs uh, get together, the uh, Council of Inspectors General on Integrity and Efficiency, composed of all 75 federal IGs, and there is a committee of SIGI of called the Integrity Committee that handles complaints of misconduct by IGs. You don't want the agency head uh, to be investigating the IG, so you have a group of IGs who, who do it. The uh, unfortunate thing is that the Integrity Committee does not have a budget, does not have significant permanent staff. It's inconsistently done. They sometimes take too long, longer than they would if there was a permanent staff. Um, and and uh, it, I think it's very important to have a robust effective oversight entity, even for IGs. There needs to be someone watching the watchdogs as well. Everyone needs oversight, including IGs.
0: What uh, ideally would that structure look like if you were king for a day?
3: <laughs> if I were king for a day, there was a lot of things I would do. But in terms of the <laughs> integrity committee, um, I would give it a permanent budget. I would give it a permanent staff so that they could handle the majority of the complaints. They may supplement it by... Um, volunteers from the IG community so that they wouldn't have to. And they would have experience and um, precedent for handling investigations. I think that would be more consistent than the way it works now, which is every time there's an investigation, the chair of the integrity committee has to go get a volunteer from the IG community. So we need a permanent staff. We need a permanent budget. We need experienced, dedicated professionals to do those investigations.
0: You also wrote recently the removal process for IG should be clarified. Now you have firsthand experience with this being in the news uh, for that situation yourself. What would you like to see? And and not for misconduct. I want to be very clear. That was a decision uh, president Trump made uh, solely on, on other considerations. So I don't want to misrepresent that by any means, Glenn, but what should that look like in your view? What, what would make, uh, for an objective process for judging the performance of inspectors general?
3: Well, I think basically sort of in two regards. One, um, I think the president, the president now has to, um, if, if he wants to remove an IG wait 30 days, give the, uh, give notice to Congress of the proposed removal, wait 30 days and gives the reasons why for the removal. That hasn't always been followed. Uh, in as you mentioned, several IGS were um, removed in the last administration, and they didn't wait. They didn't wait 30 days. They put the IG on administrative leave immediately. So that's a problem. So I think there ought to be beefed up that there ought to be uh, assurance that 30 days are, are um, wait. It's waited for 30 days before the IG is removed. But in addition, the IG, I think the IG Act should be amended and clarified to ensure that the president gives the specific reasons why the IG is removed. In the past, the president has just simply said, uh, I've lost confidence in the IG. Both President Obama and President Trump use that general phrase. And I think there ought to be more specificity about why an IG is removed. So that's one proposal. And the second proposal, I think, is sometimes IGs are not performing effectively and it's, there's no misconduct involved, but some of them just don't have the Set of skills, or the temperament, or have been there long too long, and I think that's a very, very small minority, a very few, but there are some, and I think there ought to be a way to more objectively assess whether an IG is not performing up to a minimum standard, and um, and make recommendations to the president. Right now, the president is very loath to remove the IG uh, for good reasons to ensure the independence of an IG, but there are some IGs, a very, very few, that perhaps should be uh, replaced. And so I propose that there be a committee, maybe of other IGs, senior IGs, uh, to make recommendations to the president to give the president reasons and you know uh, uh, incentive uh, to remove a underperforming IG. Or the committee can be composed of others, maybe the head of the GAO, the deputy director for management of OMB, somebody from SIGI, to make a recommendation so that it would give more objective assessment of the performance of an IG and not rely on. Um, an agency head, for example, who may not like an aggressive IG who's doing his or her job effectively. So those are two proposals I think ought to be considered to improve the uh, oversight of IGs and the process for removing underperforming IGs.
0: I want to go back to the the Defense Department Inspector General position. Rob Storch is the nominee there, former Deputy IG at the Justice Department. He's Right now, the uh, IG at the National Security Agency, tremendously qualified, uh, great candidate. His nomination is on hold, not because of anything to do with him. Uh, Senator Hawley from Missouri has a hold on, on Defense Dep- uh, Department nominations broadly. And I'm, it doesn't strike me that constitutionally there's much we can do about that at this point.
3: No, I don't think so. It is a presidential appointed Senate confirmed position, but I, as I state in my article, I think both the president and the Senate ought to make confirmation nomination and confirmation of I.G.s a priority, not an afterthought. It took the president ten months to nominate Rob. He's eminently qualified, and and he should be confirmed. He he received unanimous support in committee, and he's just sitting on the floor, in the executive calendar. And the problem is, if one senator puts a hold on uh, a nominee, it takes a lot of precious floor time to. Debate and then vote on that hold. And the, the Senate has a lot on its plate, confirmation of judges, the other must pass legislation. So it's very difficult to override that hold. Um, so I, I think it's 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 imperative for both the, the president and and the Congress to make it a priority to confirm people for these important positions. I wrote an article that the IGs are some of the most important public officials you have never heard of. But they are very important and they play a critically important role in promoting economy efficiency and effectiveness and detecting and deterring waste fraud and abuse. And we need to ensure that the positions are filled with permanent qualified candidates in a timely way.
0: Glenn Fine, it's great to talk to you as always. Thanks for coming on today.
3: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: You can find a link to both the pieces Glenn wrote that we talked about there in today's show notes at defensescooppodcast.com. The Defense Department's new Zero Trust Strategy and Roadmap are out. DOD Acting Principal Deputy Chief Information Officer David McEwen and DoD Zero Trust Portfolio Management Office Chief Randy Resnick rolled them out Tuesday at the Pentagon. In this highlight of that event, Dave McEwen begins with the presentation of the new Strategy and Roadmap.
4: Today we are excited to announce the release of the Department of Defense's first Zero Trust Strategy and Roadmap to focus and orchestrate our ongoing and future implementation of Zero Trust throughout the department. Zero Trust is a framework for moving beyond relying on perimeter-based cybersecurity defense tools alone and basically um, assuming that breach has occurred within our boundary and responding accordingly. A little background in alignment with the White House EO on improving the nation's cybersecurity. We have spent the last year laying the foundation for implementation by FY27 of a zero trust framework aligned with DOD enterprise requirements. Earlier this year, we established the Zero Trust Portfolio Management Office under the DOD CIO, and we published a reference architecture that provides the what in technical terms as far as implementing zero trust goes. Uh, With the publication of this strategy, we have articulated the how uh, that can address clear outcomes of how to get to zero trust. And not only accelerated technology adoption is discussed, but also a culture of zero trust at DOD and an integrated approach at the department and the component levels is desired. Implementation of our zero trust goals to include educating every corner of the department is an ambitious undertaking. Uh, we recognize that from the beginning. And that has driven our pace and informed our strategy. I would like to turn it over to Mr. Randy Resnick, who we hired earlier in the year to be the director of the Zero Trust Portfolio Management Office to provide further details. Randy. Thank you, Mr. McKellen. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. I'm very excited to be here.
5: Uh, I'm excited uh to uh, announce the implementation of uh the uh and the publication of the zero trust strategy and how it will protect uh, the Department of Defense with zero trust we are assuming that a network is already compromised and though uh and through recurring user authentication and authentic authorization we will thwart and frustrate an adversary from moving through a network and also quickly identify them and mitigate damage and the vulnerability they may have exploited. So if we compare this to uh, our home security, we could say that uh, we traditionally lock our windows and doors and that only those with a key can gain access. With zero trust, we have identified the items of value within the house uh, and we place guards and locks Uh, within each one of those items inside the house as well. This is the level of security that we need to counter sophisticated cyber adversaries. What is significant about this strategy is that the strategy makes Zero Trust tangible and achievable while recognizing a dynamic and frankly, uh, continuous improvement approach. Specifically, we need to achieve through the strategy descriptions, 45 capability outcomes Many of which are interconnected, and all of which were the result of collaboration, uh, of significant technical collaboration across the department uh, with NSA, DISA, DMDC, U.S. Cyber Command, and the services. Each capability, the 45 capabilities, uh, resides either within what we're calling target or advanced levels of zero trust. The DoD Zero Trust target level is uh, deemed to be uh, the required minimum uh, set of Zero Trust capability outcomes and activities necessary to secure and protect the department's data, applications, assets, and services to manage risks from all cyber threats uh, to the Department of Defense. DoD Advanced Level Zero Trust is the achievement of target level Zero Trust, but in addition, an additional layer uh, called Advanced, uh, that's the full set of identified Zero Trust capability outcomes and activities that enable adaptive response to cybersecurity risks and threats to the maximum pinnacle level that we have defined. Reaching an advanced state does not mean an end to maturing zero trust, rather protection of attack surfaces needs to continue to adapt and refine as the adversary attack approaches and vectors mutate over time. The strategy also allows us to begin monitoring progress towards zero trust. It enables the components to define how, uh, as it works for them, how they uh, implement zero trust and within the parameters of courses of action that we have provided in this strategy. Lastly, the strategy issues a call for collaboration with one of our most important partners, industry. We know that industry already has many ZT solutions and they can look at our strategy and see where we're moving towards a cybersecurity architecture and framework.
0: Randy Resnick, Chief of the Zero Trust Portfolio Management Office at the Pentagon at Tuesday's rollout of the DOD Zero Trust Strategy and Roadmap. You can read more about the rollout in today's show notes at defensescooppodcast.com. The Defense Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every week on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Defense Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Defense Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher help me put the show together every week and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Defense Scoop Podcast returns next Wednesday. I'm Francis Rose. I'll talk to you then. Thanks for listening.